Well, good morning, Covenant. It's great to be with you this morning. It's a joy, and I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to open up God's Word with us today. We're going to be continuing on in our series that we've been going through. We've been calling it Christ and Chaos. And when we were thinking about what to preach this summer, we asked ourselves this question. What do our people need to hear from God? And even as we asked ourselves this question, what do I need to hear from God? We were drawn to this theme of seeing Christ enter into chaos. We were drawn to it because we all sense that there's this ongoing, acute sense of chaos and crisis in our world. There's been large-scale global problems like a pandemic and war. There's been national and city-level issues. We've constantly told ourselves, if we can just make it past fill-in-the-blank problem, we'll be fine. But to some degree or another, on top of all of these things, each of us in, as individuals face some of our own troubles and suffering. Each of us live lives in which we see firsthand the effects of sin and the fall and corruption on this earth. And I've noticed that for myself, as well as others, that the steady accumulation and combination of all these issues can create profound and deep struggles for faith in Christ. For some, it's a sense of exhaustion. For others, a sense of confusion But still, for many, this breeds feelings of doubt and disorientation. When the things that you've heard and believed about God seem to be at odds with your immediate experience, it's hard to see past that dissonance. And more than that, it's hard to believe in that dissonance. The witness of church history tells us that we are not alone in grappling with these feelings. Many spiritual giants and prominent leaders throughout the past 2,000 years have expressed similar experiences of doubt and distance from God. People like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Mother Teresa, all of them and many others have told us about moments and seasons in their lives in which they felt drawn toward unbelief because of trials in their lives. More than any argument from a skeptic, It is suffering or the suffering of someone you love that seems to complicate faith and create a crisis of doubt and unbelief. And maybe that's you this morning. And if so, I want to open up the Scriptures and I want to point us to Jesus. We're going to be looking at another miracle from Mark's Gospel. And today we're going to see in this story just how Jesus responds to a man facing a similar crisis of unbelief. And I believe that there's much in Jesus' response that's meant to encourage us, to lift us up in faith so that we might worship Him. So let's read together from Mark 9, starting in verse 14. You can turn there in your Bibles or you can find it in your order of worship. That's Mark 9, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd when they saw him were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? 
And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. It's given for our good. Father, we ask now as we come before your scriptures and as we sit underneath your word, we ask that you would guide us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see how he responds. No matter where we're at in faith, whether we're feeling strong, whether we're feeling weak, or whether our faith is non-existent, would you help us to hear from you today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our story this morning comes on the heels of Jesus' transfiguration. And you might remember that moment in Jesus' life when he took Peter and James and John with him up a mountain. And his appearance was transformed or transfigured before them. It became intensely radiant and glorious. And the Old Testament figures Elijah and Moses appeared with him. And the voice of the Father cried out from above saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The whole event leaves the three disciples equal parts confused and amazed. And our scene opens up as they come down the mountain to rejoin the other nine disciples. But as they approach the disciples, they see that a crowd had formed around them and an argument had arisen between the scribes and them. You can almost imagine Jesus descending down the mountain like a parent descending upon a playground to break up a scuffle between their kids. When the crowd sees Jesus, verse 15 says that they were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and they greeted him. And it's not actually all that clear what about his appearance amazes them. But I like to think that perhaps there was some kind of residual glory from the transfiguration. Kind of like when Moses' face shone with glory after receiving the law. But that moment of wonder quickly passes as Jesus asks the crowd the obvious question. What are you arguing about with my disciples? 
And though he asks the whole crowd this question, only one man gingerly steps forward to answer him. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. In just these few words, this man sketches out what I'm sure is that singular concern of his life. And he also voices this great disappointment in the disciples. Suffering has that focusing effect on us. When we encounter difficulties, they have a way of clouding out all of the other trivial matters of life. There's a weightiness to everyday existence that you see in this father. He's saying, Jesus, my son is suffering. And I came here so that you could help him, but all I found was your disciples. And they were not strong enough. You can hear the dejection in his voice as he considers to himself that maybe since Jesus' followers were powerless to help him, maybe Jesus too is powerless to help him. And you and I can read even just up to that point in the story, and we can see that that's a wrong-headed conclusion. Jesus is not powerless, yet if you're like me, I often look at the failures of other Christians, and I find myself tempted toward doubt, tempted to aim my suspicions and disappointments at Jesus rather than at his followers. And I don't make light of the damage that one Christian's failures can have on another's, especially someone in leadership. But as someone like myself who has lived through this kind of pain and disorientation, I need to be reminded, we need to be reminded that in times of doubt, we need to evaluate Jesus on his own terms for his own words, character, and actions. And this is precisely why Jesus responds with the kind of forceful rebuke that he does. Immediately after the man answers Jesus' question, Jesus turns back to the crowd and he says this, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus' words have this harshness to them. They're strident. It might catch you off guard. You might feel like he's being too harsh with them. After all, what did they do? Well, if you zoom out and you look with a careful eye, you'd see that all throughout Mark's gospel, the scribes constantly are confronting Jesus with a faithless posture. Mark shows us that these scribes were these people who held elite status in the culture. They were protectors of Scripture and interpreters of it. They were guardians of Jewish tradition. But when it came to Jesus, they were far from neutral observers. They always seemed to be trying to catch Jesus in error. They were trying to cast him in the worst possible light. In scene after scene, you see the scribes witnessing the teachings and the miracles of Jesus and yet questioning in their hearts. Accusing Jesus of being possessed by a demon. And so, after countless opportunities to be won over and convinced, Jesus utters the rebuke that they deserve. And as he does this, he makes for us an important distinction. There is a difference between doubt and faithlessness. 
Doubt or unbelief is the struggle experienced by a person who wants to believe but might face uncertainty or trouble in their faith, maybe a lack of understanding. Nevertheless, they are pursuing faithfulness in the face of difficulty. And then there's faithlessness. Faithlessness is a kind of cynical posture that's unwilling to believe. It's a hardness of heart. You see this in the way that despite watching the incarnate Son of God perform miracles and teach with divine authority, the scribes continue to trust their own assumptions of reality, their own interpretations of the world. The prime example of their heart's faithless posture comes later on in the story. As we'll see, Jesus casts the demon out of the boy, and the boy convulses and then crumples to the ground. And rather than waiting just a moment to see how Jesus responds, the scribes and the crowd say to themselves, the boy must be dead. They think to themselves, surely Jesus is not powerful. Surely he's not to be trusted. He's not good. There's no struggle with unbelief, only a steadfast conclusion of their own wisdom and their own certainty. And to this faithless posture, Jesus has strong words. And you and I would do well to listen to him. We would do well to consider how it is that we might let those doubts that we experience calcify and turn into faithlessness and skepticism to move us from a place of earnest struggle in faith to a place of resignation and cynicism. And if you feel like you're teetering on this edge, or even if you feel like you've lost this fight, I want you to see how Jesus turns his attention back to this man and his son and and how he responds. After rebuking the crowd, the boy is brought before Jesus. And when the unclean spirit sees Jesus, it senses the threat. And it convulses the boy. Sends him into this dramatic episode. But Jesus looks at the father. And he asks him, how long has this been happening to him? Now it's easy to just move right past that moment. But it's always fascinating to me when Jesus asks a question. It's not for a lack of understanding or a lack of awareness that he asks questions. Throughout the gospel narratives, we see that because of his divine power, Jesus knows the internal thoughts of people. He knows what's happening inside of them, and yet he initiates this deeply humanizing moment with the Father. He's like a good doctor or a good therapist asking his patient, when did this start? How long have you been feeling like this? How long have you been suffering like this? He invites the man to speak about his troubles. And so the man tells him how his son has been afflicted from childhood. And time after time, the Spirit has tried to destroy his son, casting him into fire, casting him into water, bringing him right up to the point of death and then relenting, but always coming back again. Can you imagine what this must be like for the family? One of the joys and gifts of my role here at Covenant working with the kids and the students is that I sometimes get to peek behind the curtains of families 
to hear about what's going well and what's hard. And one of the things that I've noticed is the way that a child's challenges or suffering has this deep hold on a parent. Watching your child or really anyone that you love face hardship pierces your heart with fear. Even normal, everyday concerns for a parent like, will my child be accepted and loved by their peers? Or will my child have a bright and stable future? Questions like these seem to grip parents with worry. And then, then there's some parents whose children face unique suffering. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis or mental health challenges, things that make them feel helpless and isolated. Parents carry these burdens in their hearts, and I know that many of them feel overwhelmed and anxious when they think about the world that their kids are growing up in and the problems that they might face. And these burdens might make you feel like this father when you pray. The potential of disappointment shrinks your prayers. After all, you've prayed the prayers. You've seen the doctors and you've listened to the experts, but you still face the same challenges. And so you hedge your bets and you sound like this man, Lord, if you can, have compassion on us and help us. But Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now Jesus is full of understanding and care for this man, but he doesn't just let a statement like that fly. He understands that there's this built-in uncertainty, if you can. Skepticism about Jesus' power and authority. The man is teetering between doubt and faithlessness, and Jesus holds him to account. He, He says, you've got to decide who it is you think I am and if you're going to trust me. And immediately, out of the depths of his soul, the man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. It's like this visceral, unfiltered gut reaction. The man doesn't even have the chance to consider how true of a statement it is, how accurately it reflects the state of his heart. Ultimately, he's deciding to throw himself upon Jesus in faith, but he's also pleading with Jesus to help his remaining doubt and reluctance. I believe, help my unbelief. And so the question of this story, the question in the heart of this man and and anyone else who finds themselves echoing his words, you find yourself voicing a faith that's under pressure but nevertheless real, the question of this story is how does Jesus respond to such a plea? Verse 26 says that despite ongoing distraction from the crowd, Jesus turns to the boy and he rebukes the unclean spirit inside of him. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The boy cried out as the spirit convulsed him, but ultimately left him lying down motionless. And the faithless crowd sees it And they interpret it in the worst possible light. They say, he's dead. They're unwilling to believe even what their eyes would soon see to be true. But Jesus, Jesus 
takes the boy by the hand. He lifts him up, and as the boy's feet touch the ground, the boy stands up with his own strength, healed, set free from a life of bondage to suffering, reunited to his father who has longed for this day. And the scene closes. But Mark adds this final detail that when, the, when Jesus and the disciples had entered a house and they were alone with him, they asked him, why couldn't we cast that demon out? After all, Jesus had sent them out to do this very thing earlier in Mark chapter 6. And they had been able to cast out many demons before this one. They were confused and, and maybe a little bit embarrassed. But Jesus answered them, saying that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And it seems like he's saying that they had grown accustomed to the power, but they had neglected communing with the one who gave them this authority and power. And it's like this final moment should instruct any of us who feel strong in faith. The ones of us who currently aren't wrestling with doubts or unbelief. And maybe you're finding yourself in a place of joy and faith. And to you, Jesus gives this needed wisdom. Don't forget who it is that gives you faith. That strengthens and empowers you. Seek Him in prayer. And so we come to the end of this story and we've got to ask ourselves, what does a story like this mean for us? How does Jesus respond to this crisis of unbelief? And how should that matter to us? Well, when we look at Jesus in this passage, I think we see three important responses that are relevant to us. First, to the faithless. To the scribes, he offers a strong rebuke. He warns us against adopting that rebellious attitude of the scribes and the crowds because they do not have doubts. They willfully disbelief. For them, there's a call to repent, believe the gospel. And to those who see themselves as strong in faith, like the disciples, he points out the ongoing need for prayer and devotion to the one who gives them faith. He's saying, don't let your former progress in faith hinder you from that ongoing need to have fellowship with God through prayer. And then to the one who's struggling with unbelief, just like this father. Jesus sees you. He knows how you've suffered and he has compassion on you. He understands why it may feel difficult, but he calls you to trust him. And if you find that this man's plea is your prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, know that this is a desire that Jesus loves to answer. He doesn't despise your doubt, but he also doesn't valorize it. He calls you up and out from it. And that doesn't always mean that he will solve your suffering in the here and now. It's not a guarantee, and that's a challenge. That is hard for us. But if you consider all the ones in whom you could place your faith, I want to encourage you to believe in the one who has taken upon himself our suffering. Know that when your prayer remains unanswered in the way that you hoped, Jesus has lived through this pain. 
as he sat in the garden begging his father. He lived through the pain of Good Friday and he sat in the depths on Saturday. But we know that the reality of Resurrection Sunday grants us a promise and a hope that this life or any suffering in it cannot take away. When we cling to Him in faith, when we bring to Him whatever doubts and fears and unbelief remain, we have a sure hope that the One who offers us redemption will one day restore all things. In Him we believe, and may He help us with our unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we come to You I'm sure in many different places in this room, but we ask, Lord, that your gospel would be true, that it would be beautiful to us, that we would see the beauty of your Son and that we would take hold of him in faith, that that you would draw us near by your Spirit. We thank you that you don't despise our doubt, Lord. We ask that you would strengthen us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.